Amen. Thank you, Brother Gary. We appreciate that very much. Appreciate that song. Brother Dalton said he was giving me, saving me some time to preach. He hasn't learned yet. I'm going to take my time. (laughs) I'll, I'll be done when I get done. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 17, Gospel of John chapter 17. Today we're continuing to look at this most valuable prayer that was ever recorded in the Bible. There are many prayers that we find in the Bible, and I guess you would have to say if a prayer made its way into the Scriptures, it would have to be a very valuable prayer. But this one that we're talking about for the past three weeks is the most valuable prayer that we find in the Bible. This is the most significant one that was ever prayed because this is Jesus Christ speaking to his heavenly Father. And as Jesus prayed this prayer, we have the opportunity to listen in on a conversation that's taking place between two almighty members of the Godhead. This is the eternal Son who's speaking to the everlasting Father. And you would think that being able to listen in on a conversation like that, that we just wouldn't be able to understand what's being said. The principles and the ideas must be so lofty, the language so difficult, that we could never understand what Jesus would say to his heavenly Father. But that's not what we find at all. What we find here are ideas that are very simple. They're very concise. Jesus spoke very plainly in these words. And he actually gave us these words as a source of hope and comfort for everybody who is a Christian. Now today I want to preach to you part number three of this message, the real Lord's Prayer. And there are three very important petitions that Jesus spoke in this prayer. In the previous two sermons, parts one and two, we've spoken about the first and two petitions respectively. And today I'm going to speak about the third petition. And this one is particularly for me and particularly for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read about this third petition. We're going to start in the 20th verse of John chapter 17. Jesus is still praying. In fact, this whole chapter, this whole chapter is the real Lord's Prayer. But in verse number 20, Jesus says, Neither pray I for these alone. And there he's speaking about the disciples, those disciples that he'd chosen out who were with him. But he says, For them also which shall believe on me through their word, and that would be you and me, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them." Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful prayer that you prayed. So many great truths that we find here. And I just ask you, Lord, to help us to discover some of these truths today. Speak to our hearts as we proclaim your word. May we know Jesus Christ better. And Lord, may we be one as you have prayed in this prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
I'd like for you to notice verse number 20 once again. Jesus says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their, their word. So we find here that Jesus is not just speaking about the 11 disciples and not just praying for them. Those are the men that were present as Jesus went away to pray this prayer. But now he says the prayer is not for them alone, not just for them alone, but this is a prayer for every person who will trust Jesus Christ because of their testimony. From the time that Jesus lived here, there have been about 40 generations of people that have come and gone uh, since that time. And from the first generation to the 10th, from the 10th to the 20th, from the 20th to the 40th, there have been men and women who have kept alive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people have been preaching this same gospel all the way from that time until now. And so at the very moment that you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, there was someone there who could tell you what Jesus Christ did for you. And Jesus is praying for everyone who will believe through the witness of the disciples that came down from that very first century. Now keep in mind here that Jesus has in his mind that he's praying for you specifically. And I firmly believe with all of my heart that when Jesus prayed this prayer that he had me on his mind. He knew that one day Mark Smith would believe... And he knew that he wanted to pray for me that I would receive the salvation that he had gone to the cross to give me. And so I can say with all assurance that when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Now, before I speak specifically today about the third petition, we're going to talk just a moment about those first two petitions. We'll catch up a little bit with that. The first petition, or petition number one, was a self-prayer for his past glory. The first part of this prayer is that Christ would once again have the glory that he had with the heavenly father before he came into this world. Now, when Jesus was with the heavenly father, he did have this magnificent glory, but the glory of Christ had to be veiled. Jesus had to cover up his glory because the Bible tells us that God dwells in a light that no man is able to approach into. And so Jesus could not come to this world and be among us and walk among us if he hadn't covered up that glory. He couldn't have been born. His mother would never have been able to see him if Jesus had not covered up his glory. The shepherds would not have been able to visit him in the manger if it wasn't veiled. And those brothers and sisters of Jesus, they never would have been able to play with him and know him personally if Jesus hadn't covered up that glory. And then certainly when he chose his disciples, they wouldn't have been able to walk with him if that brilliant light of the glory of Jesus Christ was not veiled in his human flesh. But more important than all of those things is that Jesus had to hide that glory in order for him to go to the cross. Jesus had to cover it in human flesh in order that he could go and make the sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And Jesus voluntarily did that. He laid aside this glory. He laid aside the glory that he had with the Father for a short time until he could come to this earth and live his life here and to go to the cross. But now we find that Jesus is nearing the end of his tenure on earth. He's ready to go back to the Father. He's just hours away from the crucifixion. And his work would be completed here on this earth. And through that work, the Father would be glorified because Jesus would give eternal life for all those that he came to save. And then after Jesus had done all of that work and had finished it, here he prays that he would receive his glory once again that he had with the heavenly Father. Then Jesus prayed a second petition, and this one was a selfless prayer for his present disciples. 
Jesus was going to give his life for them. He would do everything that it was necessary in order to bring them to the Father. So Jesus was praying personally for those disciples that were with him at that time. He personally chose them, and his choice of them for his own is just a wonderful doctrine that we know today that God personally has chosen out a certain number of people and he's made those people a gift to his own dear son. And Jesus came to this world to redeem those that were given to him by the Father. Now I say again that that is a wonderful doctrine because that tells me that I am not just a number out here in the mass of humanity that God really knows nothing personally about. This tells me that God knew me personally. Jesus knew me personally. He gave his life for me personally. And he didn't come to die just to give me a chance to be saved. He died to secure my salvation. And because of that, he looked at those that the Father had given him the ones that he gave personally, and he prayed that those would be anchored to him. He prayed that they would keep his word. He prayed they would be protected by his name, that they would have the joy that he had. He prayed that they would be sanctified by the truth, that they would become vessels used for their intended purpose, and they would glorify God. Trophies set apart for his wonderful grace. And then he prayed also one more thing. He prayed that they would be his witnesses. He prayed that they would go forth and they would give this saving gospel of Jesus Christ and that same gospel would come down to us today in order that we might believe. But now we come to the third petition of this prayer and this is specifically a part of the prayer for those who would believe in the witness of those disciples. And as I said, that that means you and me. We have the word of God because the disciples were so faithful to go into the world and proclaim it. So he's praying for us. And he was certain of who he's praying for. He knew who would believe because he chose those who would believe. So he prayed for those who would believe. But what is it that he prayed for them in this particular part of the prayer? Well, that's what we want to talk about today. What is Jesus praying for when he prays for those who are specifically given to him by the Father? Well, this third petition is a self-unifying prayer for his future followers. In verse number 21, Jesus says that they may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may be one, may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, this is a self-unifying prayer. And when I say self-unifying, I mean that the basis for all unity among Christians is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is Christianity. Now, when we talk about Christianity, we're not talking about a set of rules and regulations that people keep. We're not talking about rituals that people go through, and that's what we mean by Christianity. When we speak of Christianity, we're speaking of Christ himself, because Christ is the focus. Christ is the center of Christianity. And so when you become a part of the family of God, and I become a part of the family of God, we have a bond that exists between us. We have a common bond, and that bond is Jesus Christ himself. It's Jesus in us. Now today, as we think about this prayer being a prayer of unity, there are a few things that I'd like to point out to you about unity. I want to speak, first of all, about the essence of unity. What is unity? Now, before we talk about what it is, Now, you have to understand what unity is before you can have it. But before we talk about what it is, let me mention a couple of things that unity is not. Unity is not unification. 
Now, it's certainly not ours to create just by simply putting uh, groups of people together. It's not an organizational effort on the part of man. We can't produce unity like that. We don't, we don't put groups together and make an organization out of them and produce the kind of unity that Jesus is speaking of. He's not talking about that. Now, someone has said that you can take two tomcats and tail, uh, tie their tails together, throw them over a clothesline, and you have unification, but you don't have unity. You can take and go into the cemetery And there's all kinds of people there that are all together. There's unification there, but there's not unity because all of those people are dead. That's not what Jesus is speaking of. It's not about putting people together. So it's not unification. Then unity is not uniformity. Unity is not when I look like you and you look like me. Not when I dress like you and you dress like me. Unity is not when you talk like me and I talk like you. Now, we know that's true because those of you that know my wife and you've spoken to her, you know that she doesn't talk like you. When we go out somewhere, people say, well, geez, I just love your accent, and they tell her that all the time. She doesn't have an accent. You have the accent. <laughs> so we're not talking about that. We're not talking about people who look alike and, and dress alike, not everybody being the same. Now, admittedly, there are a lot of churches that think that unity is produced by spitting out all these little clones. Everybody has to look just like everybody else. And there's even one church that I heard of that they have a church barbershop. And the people that get saved, they're just like recruits. They go into the church barbershop and they get their Christian haircut. And everybody looks the same. That's not what unity is. We can't produce unity with a cookie cutter. So Jesus is not speaking about unification. He's not talking about uniformity in the prayer. He's speaking about how you and I, as members of the same church, can live together and dwell together and work with one another and be with one another as the body of Christ. Now, when I'm speaking of the body of Christ, I'm not talking about some universal, mystical, invisible body that nobody's ever seen before. I'm not speaking about that. Jesus is talking about the local body of believers, people who come together in the same church with all of our diversities, and we live and work together. It's the local church. And so this is what Jesus is speaking about. All of the diversities that we bring into the church, it doesn't matter. We don't all have to look alike. We don't all have to be of the same race. We just have to have the same Savior, the same Savior who's living in all of us. And that's the unity that Jesus is praying for. And in fact, he compares this to the unity that existed in the Godhead. It's a unity that's just like that, a unity that exists between the Father and the Son. So what is the essence of unity? Well, let me give you two thoughts about it today. The essence of unity, number one, Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 12. Number one is mutual dependence, mutual dependence. And in Romans 12, he said, so we being many are one body in Christ and everyone members one of another. So a unified body is one that has dependence and interdependence on other people that are in the church. It's just like every part of your body is dependent upon another part of your body. Your little finger is dependent upon all the other parts of your body. Your your finger is dependent upon the veins and the capillaries. It's dependent upon the blood that gets pumped to it by the heart. It's dependent upon the feeling that it gets from sending those nerve impulses to the brain. 
Our bodies work together, and no part of our body is independent. It's all one unified body. It's like the toe bone being connected to the foot bone, and the foot bone being connected to the ankle bone, and the ankle bone's connected to the leg bone, the leg bone's connected to the knee bone, and on and on and on. That's what it's talking about. Every part is dependent upon the other part. But then even more than that, though, Jesus is speaking about the dependence that operates within the Godhead itself. Because Jesus was dependent upon his heavenly Father. Jesus never said or did anything that his heavenly Father didn't want him to say or do. And the heavenly Father was dependent upon Jesus. And so, I mean, this, this was so necessary that the heavenly Father be dependent upon Jesus, that that's the reason why he sent Jesus into the world. Because Jesus is the expression of the Father. We could never know what God the Father was like. We could never know that how God loves us and wants to have a relationship with us unless Jesus had been sent into the world to show the love of the Father to us. Now, John writes about that right here in his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 18. He says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And so the Father was dependent upon Jesus. Mutually dependent. And in the church, I am dependent upon you and you are dependent upon me. Our ministries all work together in unity. Over 200 years ago, our founding fathers signed the Declaration of Independence from England. And you know since that time that people have been trying to, people in America especially, have been trying to take that Declaration of Independence and make a part of their, of their personal lives. And they say, I'm independent. I'm the macho man. I don't need you. I don't need anybody. But a Christian should never declare his independence. We are always dependent upon God, and we're always dependent upon one another. Now, several weeks ago, I was, I was speaking with uh, Jim Andrews, and we were talking about some of the young couples in our church And we were talking about just how faithful the young couples in our church are. Just praising God for the faithfulness of those folks. And I made a remark. I said, you know, uh, some of our young families in the church put on a facade because they come in and they have difficulties that are going on in their families. But you would never know about that because they, 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 they don't let you know about it. And Jim said, you know something? I need that facade. And what he meant was, I depend upon that because I need the encouragement that comes from it. Now, folks, I'm not talking about all of us being fake and trying to cover up our problems in that way and just being fake people. But what I am speaking of is that we depend upon each other for encouragement. If I come to the church with a scowl on my face every Sunday, it won't be long before you have a scowl on your face too. And so I depend upon you to encourage me, and I want to encourage you. And that's what the Bible's talking about with dependence. But then Jesus says something else here or shows us something else. Not only mutual dependence, but there's also mutual devotion. Jesus was totally devoted to his Father, and the Heavenly Father was devoted to him. That's an example for us. We're to be devoted to one another. Now, sometimes I know that, that loving people and being devoted to people, that's a hard thing for us to do. A pastor, uh, people say, no, pastor, I, I know, I know this, that one of these days when I get to heaven, that I'm just going to love everybody. I realize that. But I'm having a hard time loving people right now. And I understand that. That's true of all of us. Someone wrote, to dwell above with people we love, that will be glory. To live below with people we know, now that's a different story. 
and we know that it is. Some people are just hard for us to live with. You can't get along with some people. I mean, they're, they're just that way. But have you noticed this, that, that, that in your personal family, that you don't get to choose your brothers and sisters? You don't get to choose who they are. You just have to live with them. They're your brothers and sisters. And when it comes to the body of Christ and the unity of the body of Christ, you don't choose your brothers and sisters. God has already chosen them for you. And if God says, I love them, and I want you to love them, then who are we to say that they aren't worth loving? We have to love them all. Now, I've seen churches that are, that are certainly divided on things like this. Uh, people divide the church up into the social scale, and people act as if your worth and value to the body of Christ and to your church depends upon how much money you have. How much money do you have in your bank account? What social scale are you on? You know, I thank the Lord that we're not like that at Brian Baptist Church. Maybe it's because none of us have anything. I don't know. <laughs> but we're not like that. And, and thank the Lord for this. We, we genuinely care for one another. And so when come, someone comes up to you and shakes your hand, they're not shaking you down at the same time. So it's a wonderful thing to have that kind of unity in the church. Mutual devotion for one another. So the essence of uni, unity is to be devoted to one another. And that means that when you have a need, I will try to meet your need. And hopefully you'll do the same for me as well. Are you doing that? Is that part of what you do as a member of Briam Baptist Church? Are you meeting the needs of other people? Well, Jesus prayed for unity and mutual dependence and mutual devotion is what he's speaking of. Now, let's go on as we talk about this because there are some problems that we have with unity. Christ prays for this, but we have to watch out because we face the enemies of unity. There are enemies of unity. Where does our unity come from? Well, I think we all know that it comes from the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, "...endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." So unity comes from the Spirit. You can't produce it. That's not something that we can do. Pastors can't do it. Deacons can't do it. Sunday school teachers can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit of God can produce our unity. We can't produce it, but I'll tell you this, we can destroy it. We're very good at that. What God has produced, we can destroy. Only the Holy Spirit creates unity. He saved you. He saved me. He placed us into this body of Christ. He can create it, and only we are the ones who destroy it. Now, how do we destroy our unity? Well, I can sum it up with this statement that Paul makes in Ephesians 4, verse 27. Just one short verse. He says, neither give place to the devil. Neither give place to the devil. We destroy unity when we give place to the devil. Well, how do we do that? Let me give you a couple of ways on this. Number one is destructive talk destructive talk. One of the biggest enemies of Christian unity is this terrible sin that we call gossip. Gossip divides and destroys the unity of the church. Proverbs sixteen twenty eight says, a froward man soweth strife and a whisperer separateth chief friends. Froward means perverse, means somebody who's contradictory. And I like the word that the King James Version puts in the end of this verse. It talks about a whisperer. Now, I want you to get that picture in your mind. I mean, do you get the picture in your mind of what a whisperer is? Doesn't that really sound sneaky? 
a whisperer, a whisperer separated friends. That's what gossip does. A gossip turns friends against one another. Well, what's gossip? Well, that's when you say anything unkind or something that's untrue about another person. Now, I want you to listen to me very closely for the next few minutes because I'm going to give you some words of wisdom here. And I didn't make this up. I wish I was smart enough to make things up like this, but I didn't make it up. I just want you to listen. Listen to this statement. Gossip doesn't begin with the first person who says something about someone else. Listen to it again. Gossip does not begin with the first person who says something about someone else. It begins with the second person who listens and accepts it. Now, you see, you're the second person. Everybody here today, you're a second person. Let me give you an example of this. You have two ladies that are speaking to one another, and they're going to gossip. Well, that could have been men, couldn't it? We'll talk, we're going to talk about ladies, though. You have two ladies. You have two ladies, and they get together, and they're going to, they're going to gossip. And first, the first lady says, you know something? Sally sure is a snob. And the second lady says, I know, she sure is a snob, isn't she? Now, the second comment of agreement is where things start to spin out of control. Roman number one, woman number one, has made her statement that Sally is a snob. She heard that Sally is a snob, and now woman number two agrees that Sally is a snob, and now she begins to spread that information to a wider circle of people. Now, gossip stops, though, when the second person refuses to listen or disagrees with that first statement. Now, here's the example. The first woman says, Sally is a snob. And the second woman says, I don't think so. Or better, she says, I don't want to talk about Sally. And so what have you done? You killed gossip right there. The second person is the one who's responsible for stopping the gossip. That's the person who's the key. And gossip will never go anywhere. It will never go anywhere if the second person refuses to entertain what's been said about someone else. It all stops right there. Now, do you understand what gossip is? Gossip is poison. It poisons the person who takes that and uses it and tells other people about it. Now, I I don't know anybody who willfully ingests poison. Would people do that? Willfully ingest poison? The only people I know who willfully ingest poison are people who smoke. They gladly and willfully ingest poison in their bodies. Most of us won't ingest poison. We understand that's the wrong thing for us to do. Now, when it comes to this sin of gossip, this is really, folks, listening to the voice of Satan. Anybody here ever heard the voice of Satan? I mean, besides your mother-in-law when she calls you. Have you ever heard the voice of Satan? I've heard the voice of Satan. And you know what it is? Whenever I hear a church member begin to say something bad about another church member, when they start to talk bad about somebody else in the church, that's when you hear the voice of Satan. You can't create unity, but you can destroy it. You can kill it. So how else do you destroy unity? Well, secondly, divisive attitudes, divisive attitudes. In Titus chapter 3, it says, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. Now that's talking about people who like to argue about everything. I don't care what it is. If you have one opinion, they have another opinion. 
And they're not content to let you just give your opinion without giving their opinion also. And so no matter what it is, they want to argue. Well, this verse says that what we're to do is to warn a divisive person. We go to that person, and if they want to argue all the time, we warn them and tell them not to do that. And if that person is still divisive and still argumentative, you go to the person a second time and you warn them again. And if they continue in that, the Bible says right here that you warn him one more time, you have nothing to do with him from that point. Don't have anything to do with him. Now, some people just really have that kind of nature. They're the kind of people that no matter how you talk to them, when you talk to them, where you talk to them, they're going to tear people down. They're just going to talk bad about people. They're going to tear everything up. They're not happy about anything. They complain about everything. And the Bible says you take a person like that and you mark them. You, you, you give them the warning one time. Give them a warning a second time. If they're still divisive, it says you mark them and now don't have anything to do with them. And the Bible teaches us not to get near divisive people. And I want to tell you right now, don't stand next to a divisive person in a thunderstorm. And that's because God hates divisive people. And I didn't say it. God's word says it. Proverbs 6, verse 16. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination to him. You know what the six and seven things are? In the 19th verse, it says, A false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Are you a divisive person? Stop being divisive. Stop hurting the unity of our church. You can't create it, but you can destroy it by being destructive and divisive. Now, I have one more thing I'd like to point out about unity than that Christ prays for in this prayer. Christ prayed for all of these people to believe and to be unified. And then he shows us that there are effects of unity. What are the effects of unity? I mean, what happens when you have true unity in a church? When we decide that we're going to protect it and we're going to watch out for it and we're going to keep the unity of the church, what comes from that? Well, first of all, we benefit from God's love. When there's unity, we benefit from God's love. Now, I want you to notice something very special in, this, in, in the Scripture here. And this is totally unbelievable. If Jesus had not said this himself, there's just no way that we could believe this. Look at the last part of verse 23. Jesus says, "...that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me." And I don't know if we can truly digest that statement. Can we really even get that statement in our hearts and our minds and understand that even to the depths of what that means? If you are one of God's children, then God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. That's mind-boggling to think about it. How could that be? You know, I love children. I love little kids. I mean, these kids that come in for Sunday school, the ones that come in for Pioneer Club, I love all those little kids. I love to stand up here and do baby dedications. I just love little kids. You know, Elizabeth Petro used to love me. She's kind of got independent now. She doesn't think too much of me anymore. But I love little kids. I love them all. But I want to tell you something. I don't love your kids as much as I love mine. I, I'll be, be honest with you. I don't love your kids as much as I love my two daughters and my son and as much as I love my grandbaby. I'm not divine enough to do that. But God is. You know, I think about the pictures that we have of our grandbaby. On our refrigerator at home, there's four pictures of the grandbaby. 
One of Carson as well. It's still there. But these little kids, can you imagine what God's refrigerator must look like? Think about that for just a minute. Jesus says right here in verse 23, I and them and thou in me that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So Jesus is praying for unity and he wants us to realize just how much God loves us. And that's a supernatural love. Nobody can explain this. God loves believers just like he loves his own son. Now, when I think about that, I have to think, why? Why does God love believers as much as he loves his own son? And if I look at me, myself, and know what I do and how I live, and if you live with me every day like my wife does, you might be able to find a fault. You might be able to find something wrong with me. But I look at myself and I say, why does God love me? And if you think about yourself, why does God love you? Well, it's not because of you. It's not because you have any goodness or I have any goodness. That's not why God loves us. There's only one reason why God really loves us, and that's for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's for the sake of Christ. And you know why? Because when you became a child of God, Christ gave you his perfect righteousness. He gave you his goodness. And so when the Heavenly Father looks at any one of his children, what he sees is the goodness of Jesus Christ. He sees his own dear son. Isn't that the promise we have in Scripture? That when we get saved, Christ is in us. And Christ in us is the basis of that unity and is the whole reason why God loves us. Now, I've saved really the main point of the message until last today. Jesus is praying for unity. He prays for his children to look like his children. He prays that they'll have love for one another, dependence upon one another, devotion to one another. But he prays that for one main purpose, and that's the main point of the sermon right here at the end. The effect of unity is that the world believes our message. The world believes our message. And that's in verse number 21. If you have your Bible open, look at that, please. Verse 21, that they all may be one... As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Now, that's the unity. And then he gives us the purpose. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. How can we win the world to Christ? Have you got a plan for that? Will we win the world for Christ if we decide to have a citywide crusade? Have a big evangelist come in and set up a tent somewhere or however they may want to do it. Get into a stadium and we'll have a great evangelistic service and we'll win the world to Christ. Is that the way that we win the world? Will we win the world to Christ or will we win Ronert Park to Christ when we go out and we take a brochure from our church, a tract from our church, and leave it on every single door of the city, knock on every single door, and maybe even speak to every single person in the city? Will we win people and the world to Jesus Christ when we've done that? Will we win the world to Jesus Christ when we decide that we're going to go out here on the highway and we're going to wave our Bibles at people go by and shout scripture to them and hold up signs that say, John 3, 16. Are we going to win the world to Jesus Christ when we do that? That's not what Jesus says. He says that the world will know and the world will be one when they see the unity among Christians. Do you, do you remember how this is done? It's in that 
11th commandment, and we talked about it on the very first Sunday of this year. In John 13, 35, Jesus gave us the 11th commandment. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So have you ever thought about that? Why, why aren't people rushing to come to Jesus Christ? Why in the time that I've been speaking today that there have been thousands of cars, hundreds or thousands of cars on the other side of that wall, through those windows, going up expressway, going about their business, and they don't stop to see what's going on here? Why is that? You know what I think it is? I think those people, many of them, are very familiar with Christians. And when they see that we don't get along with one another, they say, why do I want that? Is, that's not for me. The world sees hatred. They see arguments. They see Christians that are talking bad about one another. And they say, I don't need this. I don't need it. Jesus says the world will believe when they see unity among God's people. Now, before I let you go today, I want you to look once again at verse number 24. Verse 24, Jesus said, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me. One more time in the scripture, in this passage, in John 17, he says, those that he's given me, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So one more time, before he closes out the prayer, Jesus reminds us again that believers are his gifts from the Father. And Jesus prays that all of God's gifts... Every single believer, all of them, will be with him someday in glory. Aren't you glad for the real Lord's Prayer? Aren't you glad for what Jesus prayed here? He prays for those that are chosen, and he prays that they will reach their heavenly home. And do you know that Jesus said in another place, he knew this. He said, Father, you hear me always. Jesus knew his heavenly Father was listening And Jesus knew that the Heavenly Father always would answer his prayers. So are you unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you talked bad about other members that are in the church? Do you have a divisive spirit? Do you really depend on other people in church? Do they encourage you and do you encourage them? Maybe today there's someone right across the aisle from you. And you haven't spoken to that person. Maybe you have something against that person. Maybe you've said something bad about them. Today would be the day that you walk across that aisle and you take care to mend your fences. Take some time to get rid of the divisive spirit. Jesus said, the whole world will know that you're my disciples when you have love for one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truths that we learned from your word today. Lord, I just ask you that you would speak to the heart of every member of Briam Baptist Church. May we not have divisive spirits. May we not be destructive in our talk. Lord, may we edify one another, lift one another up. May we speak the right things, and may we have unity in our church. Lord, I also pray for some person here today who doesn't know you as Savior. I ask you, Lord, to speak to their heart, open to them the way of the gospel of Christ, convict their hearts by your Holy Spirit, and bring them to you. Lord, be with this invitation today. Bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.